We're continuing with the, uh, the books of homilies. And this is uh, homily 10 of the second book, which is an information for them which take offense at certain places of the Holy Scripture. The first part. The great vitality and profit that Christian men and women take, if they will, by hearing and reading the Holy Scriptures, dearly beloved, no heart can sufficiently conceive, much less is my tongue able with words to express. Wherefore, Satan, our enemy, seeing the Scriptures to be the very means and right way to bring the people to the true knowledge of God, and that Christian religion is greatly furthered by diligent hearing and reading of them, he also perceiving what a hindrance uh, and let and let they be to him and his kingdom uh, does what he can to drive the reading of them out of God's church. And for that end, he has always stirred up in one place or other cruel tyrants, sharp persecutors and extreme enemies of God and his infallible truth to pull with violence the holy Bibles out of the people's hands and have most spitefully destroyed and consumed the same to ashes in the fire, pretending most untruly that the much hearing and reading of God's word is an occasion of heresy and carnal liberty. The typical arguments of orthodoxy in Rome and the overthrow of all good order in well-ordered common uh, wealths. If to know God aright is to be an occasion of evil, then we must need grant that the hearing and reading of the Holy Scripture is the cause of heresy, carnal liberty, and the subversion of all good orders. But the knowledge of God and of ourselves is so far from being an occasion of evil that it is the readiest, yes, the only means to bridle carnal liberty and to kill all our fleshly affections. And the ordinary way to attain this knowledge is with diligence to hear and read the Holy Scriptures. The whole Scriptures, says St. Paul, were given by inspiration of God. And shall we Christian men think to learn the knowledge of God and of ourselves in any earthly man's work of writing sooner or better than in the Holy Scriptures written by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost? The Scriptures were not brought unto us by the will of men, but holy men of God, as witnesses St. Peter, spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Ghost is the schoolmaster of truth, which leads his schoolers, as the Savior Christ says of them, into all truth. And whoever is not led and taught by his schoolmaster cannot but fall into deep error. How godly whatsoever his pretense is, what knowledge and learning soever he has of all other works and writings, or how fair uh, soever a show or face of truth he has in the estimation and the judgment of the world. If some men will say, I would have a true pattern and a perfect description of an upright life approved in the sight of God, can we find, think you, any better or any such again as Christ Jesus is and his doctrine? whose virtuous conversation and godly life the scripture so lively paints and sets forth before our eyes that we beholding that pattern might shape and frame our lives as nigh as may be agreeable to the perfection of the same. Follow you me, says St. Paul, as I follow Christ. And St. John in his epistle says, whoever abides in Christ must walk even as he has walked before him. And where shall we learn the order of Christ's life but in the scriptures? Another would have a medicine to heal all diseases and maladies of the mind. Can this be found or gotten other where than out of God's own book, his sacred scriptures? 
Christ taught so much when he said to the obstinate Jews, search the scriptures for them you think you have eternal life. If the scriptures contain in them everlasting life, it must needs follow that they have also present remedy against all that is in uh, that is a hindrance and let unto, and leads unto eternal life. I think he's I think he's quoting that scripture wrongly. If we desire the knowledge of heavenly wisdom, why have we rather learned the same of men than of God himself, who, as St. James says, is the giver of wisdom? Yes, why will we not learn it as Christ's own mouth, who, promising to be present with his church till the world's end, does perform his promise in that he is not only with us by his grace and tender pity, but also in this, that he speaks presently unto us in the Holy Scriptures the great and endless comfort of all them that have any feeling of God at all in them. Yes, he speaks now in the scriptures more profitably to us than he did by the word of the mouth to the carnal Jews when he lived with them here upon the earth. For they, I mean the Jews, could neither hear nor see those things which we may now both hear and see, if we will bring with us those ears and eyes that Christ is heard and seen with. That is diligence to hear and read his holy scriptures and true faith to believe his most comfortable promises. If one could show but the print of Christ's foot, a great number I think would fall down and worship it. But to the holy scriptures where we may see daily, if we will, I will not say the print of his feet only, but the whole shape and lively image of him. Alas, we give little reverence or none at all. If any could let us see Christ's coat, a sort of us would make hard shift, except we might come close to gaze upon it. Yes, and kiss it too. And yet all the clothes that ever he did wear can nothing so truly nor so lively express him unto us as do the scriptures. Christ's images made in wood, stone, or metal, some men for the love they bear to Christ do garnish and beautify the same with pearl, gold, and precious stone. And should we not, good brethren, much rather embrace and reverence God's holy books, the sacred Bible, which do represent Christ unto us more truly than can any image? The image can but express the form or shape of his body, if it can do so much. But the scripture does in such sort, such sort set forth Christ that we may see both God and man. We may see him, I say, speaking unto us, healing our infirmities, dying for our sins, rising from death for our justification. And to be sure, we may in the scriptures so perfectly see whole Christ with the eye of faith as we lacking faith could not with these bodily eyes see him. Though he stood now present here before us, let every man, woman, and child, therefore, with all their heart, thirst, and desire God's holy scriptures. Love them. Embrace them. Have their delight and pleasure in hearing and reading them, so as at length we may be transformed and changed into them. For the holy scriptures are God's treasure house, wherein are found all things needful for us to see, to hear, to learn, and to believe, necessary for the attaining of eternal life. Thus much is spoken only to give you a taste of some of the commodities which you may take by hearing and reading the Holy Scriptures. For as I said in the beginning, no tongue is able to declare and utter all. And although it is more clear than the noonday that to be ignorant of the Scriptures is the cause of error, as Christ says to the Sadducees, you err not knowing the Scriptures. 
then that error does hold back and pluck men away from the knowledge of God. And as St. Jerome says, not to know the scriptures is to be ignorant of Christ. Yet this notwithstanding, some there be that think it's not meet for all sorts of men to read the scriptures, because they are, as they think, in sundry places, stumbling blocks to the unlearned. First, for the phrase of the scripture is something so simple, gross, and plain, that it offendeth, it offends the fine and delicate wits of some courtiers. Furthermore, for the scripture also reports even of them that have their commendation to be the children of God, that they did diverse acts, whereof some are contrary to the law of nature, some repugnant to the law written, and others some seem to fight manifestly against public honesty. All which things, they say, are unto the simple an occasion of great offense, and cause many to think evil of the scriptures, and to discredit their authority. Some are offended at the hearing and reading of the diversity of the rites and ceremonies of the sacrifices and the oblations of the law. And some worldly-witted men think it is a great decay to the quiet and prudent governing of their commonwealths to give ear to the simple and plain rules and precepts of our Savior Christ and His gospel, as being offered that a man should be ready to turn his right ear to him that strikes him on the left, and to him which would take away his coat to offer him his cloak, with such other sayings of perfection in Christ's meaning, for carnal reason, being always an enemy to God, and not perceiving the things of God's Spirit, does abhor such precepts, which yet rightly understood infringes no judicial policies nor Christian men's governments. And some there are, which hearing the Scriptures to bid us to live without carefulness, without study or forecasting, do deride the simplicities of them. Therefore, to remove and put away occasions of offense, so much as may be, I will answer orderly to these objections. First, I shall rehearse some of those places that men are offended at for the simplicity and grossness of speech, and will show the meaning of them. In the book of Deuteronomy, it is written that Almighty God made a law. If a man died without issue, his brother or next kinsman should marry his widow, and the child that was first born between them should be called his child that was dead. That the dead man's name might not be put out of Israel. And if the brother or next kinsman would not marry the widow, then she before the magistrate of the city should pull off his shoe and spit in his face, saying, So be it done to that man that will not build his brother's house. Here, dearly beloved, the pulling off of his shoe and spitting in his face were ceremonies to signify to all the people of the city that the woman was not now in fault that God's law in the point was broken, but the whole shame and blame thereof did now rebound to the man, which openly before the magistrates refused to marry her. And it was not a reproach to him alone, but to all the posterity also, for they were called ever after the house of him whose shoe is pulled off. Another place out of the Psalms I will break, says David, the horns of the ungodly, and the horns of the righteous shall be exalted. By a horn in the scriptures is understood power, might, strength, and sometime rule and government. The horn in uh, the prophet then saying, I will break the horns of the ungodly, means that all the power, strength, and might of God's enemy shall not only be weakened and made feeble, but shall at length also be clean, broken, and destroyed. Though for a time, for the better trial of his people, God suffers the enemies to prevail and have the upper hand. 
In the psalm, it is said, I will make David's horn to flourish. Here, David's horn signifies his kingdom. Almighty God, therefore, by this manner of speaking, promises to give David victory over all his enemies and to establish him in his kingdom in spite of all his enemies. And in the threescore psalm, it is written, Moab is my washpot, and over Edom will I cast my shoe. In that place, the prophet shows how graciously God has dealt with his people, the children of Israel, giving them great victories upon their enemies on every side. For the Moabites and the Edomians, being two great nations, proud people, stout and mighty, God brought them under and made them servants to the Israelites. Servants, I say, to stoop down, to pull off their shoes and wash their feet. Then Moab is my washpot, and over Edom will I cast my shoe, is as if he had said, the Moabites and the Edomians, for all their stoutness against us in the wilderness, are now made our subjects, our servants. Yes, underlings to pull off our shoes and wash our feet. Now I pray you, what uncomely manner of speech is this so used in common phrase among the Hebrews? It is a shame that Christian men should be so lightheaded to toy as ruffians do with such manner of speeches uttered in good grave signification by the Holy Ghost. More reasonable it were for vain men to learn to reverence the form of God's words than to sport at them to their damnation. Some again are offended to hear that the godly fathers had many wives and concubines, although after the phrase of the scripture, a concubine is an honest name, for every concubine is a lawful wife, but every wife is not a concubine. And that you may be the better and that you may better understand this to be true, you shall note that it was permitted to the fathers of the Old Testament to have at one time more wives than one, for what purpose you shall, have, you shall afterward hear? Of which wives, some were free women born, some were bond women and servants. She that was freeborn had a prerogative above those who were servants and bond women. The freeborn woman was by marriage made the ruler of the house under her husband and is called the mother of the household. The masters, or the dame of the house, after our manner of speaking, and had by her marriage an interest, a right, and an ownership of his goods unto whom she was married. Other servants and bondwomen were given by the owners of them, as the manner was then, I will not say always, but for the most part, unto their daughters at that day of their marriage, to be handmaidens unto them. After such a sort did Pharaoh, king of Egypt, give Sarah, Abraham's wife, Agar, the Egyptian, to be her maid. So did Laban unto his daughter Leah at the day of their marriage, Zilpah to be her handmaid. And to his other daughter Rachel, he gave another bondmaid named Bilhah. And the wives that were the owners of their handmaids gave them in marriage to their husbands upon diverse occasions. Sarah gave her maiden Hagar in marriage to Abraham. Uh, Leah gave in like manner her maid Zilpah to her husband Jacob. So did Rachel, his other wife, give him Bilhah, her maid, saying unto him, Go unto her, and she shall bear upon my knees. Which is as if she had said, Take her to wife, and the children that she shall bear will I take upon my lap, and make of them as if they were my own. These handmaidens are bond women, although by marriage they were made wives, yet they had not this prerogative to rule in the house, but were still underlings, and in such subjection to their masters, and were never called mothers of the household, mistresses or dames of the house, but are called sometimes wives, sometimes concubines. 
The plurality of wives was by a special prerogative suffered to the fathers of the Old Testament, not for satisfying their carnal and fleshly lusts, but to have many children, because every one of them hoped and begged oftentimes of God in their prayers that the blessed seed which God promised should come into the world to break the serpent's head might come and be born of his stock and kindred. Now of those which take occasion of carnality and evil life by hearing the reading of God's book, what God has suffered, even in those men whose commendation is prayed, praised in the scriptures. As that Noah, whom St. Peter calls the eighth preacher of righteousness, was so drunk with wine that in his sleep he uncovered his own privates. The just man Lot was in like manner drunken, and in his drunkenness lay with his own daughters, contrary to the law of nature. Abraham, whose faith was so great that for the same he deserved to be called of God's own mouth, a father of many nations, the father of all believers. Besides, with Sarah, his wife had also carnal company with Hagar, Sarah's handmaid. The patriarch Jacob had to his wives two sisters at one time. The prophet David and King Solomon, his son, had many wives and concubines, which things we see plainly to be forbidden us by the law of God, and are now repug repugnant to all public honesty. These and such like in God's book, good people, are not written that we should or may do the like following their examples, <laughs> or that we ought to think that God did allow every of these things in those men. But we ought rather to believe and to judge that Noah in his drunkenness offended God highly. Lot, lying with his daughters, committed horrible incest. We ought then to learn by them this profitable lesson, that if so godly men as they were, which otherwise felt inwardly God's Holy Spirit inflaming in their hearts with the fear and love of God, could not by their own strength keep themselves from committing horrible sin, but did so grievously fall, that without God's great mercy they had perished everlastingly, how much more ought we then, miserable wretches, which have no feeling of God within us at all, continually to fear, not only that we may fall as they did, but also be overcome and drowned in sin, which they were not. And so by considering their fall, take the better occasion to acknowledge our own infirmities and weaknesses, and therefore more earnestly to call upon Almighty God with hearty prayer, incessantly for His grace to strengthen us and to defend us from all evil. And though through infirmity we chance at any time to fall, yet we may, by a hearty repentance and true faith, speedily rise again and not sleep and continue in sin as the wicked do. Thus, good people, should we understand such matters expressed in the divine scriptures, that this holy table of God's word be not turned to us to be a snare, a trap, and a stumbling stone, to take hurt by the abuse of our understanding, but let us esteem them in a reverent humility, that we may find our necessary food therein to strengthen us, to comfort us, to instruct us, as God of his great mercy has appointed them in all necessary works, so that we may be perfect before him in the whole course of our life, which he grants us, who has redeemed us, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, to whom with the Father and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory forevermore. Amen. The second part of the information for them which take offense at certain places of the Holy Scripture. You have heard, good people, in the homily last read to you, the great commodity of Holy Scriptures. 
You have heard how ignorant men, void of godly understanding, seek quarrels to discredit them. Some of their reasons you have heard uh, answered. Now we will proceed and speak of such politic wise men which are offended for that Christ's precepts should seem to destroy all order and governance as they do allege, for example, such as these be. If any man strike you on the right cheek, turn the other unto him also. If any man will contend to take the coat from you, let him have the cloak and all. Let not your left hand know what your right hand does. If your eye, your hand or your foot offend you, pull out your eye, cut off your hand, your foot, and cast it from you. If your enemy, says uh, St. Paul, be hungry, give him meat. If he is thirsty, give him drink. So doing, you will heap hot burning coals upon his head. These sentences, good people, to a natural man seem mere absurdities, contrary to all reason. For a natural man, as St. Paul says, understands not the things that belong to God. Neither can he, so long as old Adam dwells in him. Christ, therefore, means that he would have his, faithful, his faithful servant so far from vengeance and resisting wrong that he would rather have him ready to suffer another wrong than by resisting to break charity and to be out of patience. He would have our good deeds so far from all carnal respects that he would not have our nearest friends know of our well-doing to win vainglory. And though our friends and kinfolk be as dear as our right eyes or our right hands, yet if they would pluck us from God, we ought to renounce them and forsake them. Thus, if you will be profitable hearers and readers of the Holy Scriptures, you must first deny yourselves and keep under your carnal senses taken by the outward words and search the inward meaning. Reason must be given place to God's Holy Spirit. You must submit your worldly wisdom and judgment unto his divine wisdom and judgment. Consider that the scripture in what strange form whatsoever it be pronounced is the word of the living God. Let that always come to your remembrance, which is so often repeated by the prophet Isaiah. The mouth of the Lord, he says, has spoken it. The almighty and everlasting God, who with his only word created heaven and earth, has decreed it. The Lord of hosts, whose ways are in the seas, whose paths are in the deep waters. The Lord and God, by whose word all things in heaven and on earth are created, governed, and preserved, has so preserved it. The God of gods, the Lord of lords, yes, God that is God alone, incomprehensible, almighty, and everlasting. He has spoken it is his word. Cannot therefore but be true, which proceeds from God of all truth. It cannot be but wisely and prudently commanded what Almighty God has devised. How vainly whatsoever, through want of grace, we miserable wretches do imagine and judge of his most holy word. I love the, the English tradition is keen on calling the people miserable wretches. <laughs> The prophet David, David, describing a happy man, says, Blessed is the man that has not walked after the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful. There are three sorts of people whose company the prophet would have him to flee and avoid, which shall be a happy man and partaker of God's blessing. First, he may not walk after the counsel of the ungodly. Second, he may not stand in the way of sinners. Third, he must not sit in the seat of the scornful. By these three sorts of people, ungodly men, sinners, and scorners, all impiety is signified and fully expressed. By the ungodly, he understands those which have no regard of Almighty God, being void of all faith, 
whose hearts and minds are so set upon the world that they study only how to accomplish their worldly practices, their carnal imaginations, their filthy lusts and desires without any fear of God. The second sort he calls sinners, not such as do fall through ignorance or of frailness, and then who should be found free? What man ever lived upon the earth, Christ only accepted, but he has sinned. The just man falls seven times and rises again. Though the godly do fall, yet they walk not on purposely in sin. They stand not still to continue and tarry in sin. They sit not down like careless men without all fear of God's just punishment for sin, but defying sin through God's great grace and infinite mercy, they rise again and fight against sin. The prophet then calls them sinners whose hearts are clean turned from God and whose whole conversation of life is nothing but sin. They delight so much in the same that they choose continually to abide and dwell in sin. The third sort he calls scorners. That is a sort of men whose hearts are so stuffed with malice that they are not contented to dwell in sin and to lead their lives in all kinds of wickedness. But also they do condemn and scorn in all other all godliness, true religion, all honesty and virtue. Of the two first sorts of men, I will not say, but they may take repentance and be converted unto God. Of the third sort, I think I may without danger of God's judgment pronounce that never any yet converted unto God by repentance, but continued still in their abominable wickedness, heaping up to themselves damnation against the day of God's inevitable judgment. Examples of such scorners we read in the second book of Chronicles. When the good king Hezekiah, in the beginning of his reign, had destroyed idolatry, purged the temple, and reformed religion in his realm, he sent messengers into every city to gather the people to Jerusalem to solemnize the feast of Easter. That's weird. <laughs> to solemnize the feast of Easter? What? Esther? I don't know what that is. The feast of Easter in such sort as God had appointed. The post, what would that be? What would the Easter feast be? It's, it's some, it has some Old Testament corollary. Um, sorry. The post went from city to city through the hand of Ephraim and Manasseh, even unto Zebulon. And what did the people think you? Did they laud and praise the name of the Lord, which had given them so good a king, so zealous a prince to abolish idolatry and to restore again God's true religion? No. No. <laughs> The scripture says the people laughed them to scorn <laughs> and mocked the king's messengers. And in the last chapter of the same book, it is written that almighty God, having compassion upon his people, sent his messengers, the prophets unto them to call them from their abominable idolatry and wicked kind of living. But they mocked his messengers. They despised his words and misused his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people, until there was no remedy. For he gave them up into the hands of their enemies, even unto Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who spoiled them of their goods, burnt their city, and led them, their wives and their children, captives into Babylon. The wicked people that were in the days of Noah made but a mock of the word of God, when Noah told them that God would take vengeance upon them for their sins, the flood therefore came suddenly upon them and drowned them with the whole world. Lot preached to the Sodomites that except they repent, both they and their city should be destroyed. They thought his sayings impossible to be true. They scorned and mocked his abomination or his admonition and reputed him as an old doting fool. 
But when God, by his holy angels, had taken Lot, his wife, and two daughters from among them, he rained down fire and brimstone from heaven, and burned up those scorners and mockers of his holy word. And what estimation had Christ's doctrine among the scribes and Pharisees? What reward had he among them? The gospel reports this, the Pharisees, which were covetous, did scorn him in his doctrine. Oh, then you see that worldly rich men scorn the doctrine of their salvation. The worldly wise men scorn the doctrine of Christ as foolishness to their understanding. These scorners have ever been and ever shall be to the world's end. For St. Peter prophesies that such scorners should be in the world before the latter day. Take heed, therefore, my brothers, take heed. Be not scorners of God's most holy word. Provoke him not to power out of his wrath now upon you, as he did then upon um, those jibers and mockers. Be not willful murderers of your own souls. Turn unto God while there is yet time of mercy. You shall else repent it in the world to come when it shall be too late, for there shall be judgment without mercy. This might suffice to admonish us and cause us henceforth to reverence God's holy scriptures, but all men have not faith. This therefore shall not satisfy and content all men's minds, but as some are carnal, so they will still continue and abuse the scriptures carnally to their greater damnation. The unlearned and the unstable, says St. Peter, pervert the Holy Scriptures to their own destruction. Jesus Christ, as St. Paul says, is, the Jew, is to the Jews an offense, to the Gentiles foolishness. But to God's children, as well of the Jews as of the Gentiles, he is the power and wisdom of God. The holy man Simeon says that he is set forth for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. As Christ Jesus is a fall to the reprobate, which yet perish through their own default, so is his word, yea, the whole book of God, a cause of damnation unto them through their incredulity. And as he is a rising up to none other than those which are God's children by adoption, so is his word, yea, the whole scripture, the power of God to salvation to them only that do believe. Christ himself, the prophets before him, the apostles after him, all the true ministers of God's holy word, yea, every word in God's book is unto the reprobate, the savor of death unto death. Christ Jesus, the prophets, the apostles, and all the true ministers of his word, yes, every jot and tittle in the holy scripture have been, is, and shall be evermore the savor of life unto eternal life unto all those whose hearts God has purified by true faith. Let us earnestly take heed that we make no jesting stock of the books of Holy Scriptures. The more obscure and dark the sayings be to our understanding, the further let us think ourselves to be from God and His Holy Spirit, who was the author of them. Let us with more reverence endeavor ourselves to search out the wisdom hidden in the outward bark of the scripture. If we cannot understand the sense and reason of the saying, yet let us not be scorners, jesters, and deriders, for that is the uttermost token and show of a reprobate, of a plain enemy to God and his wisdom. They be not idle fables to jest at, which God does seriously pronounce, and for serious matters let us esteem them. And though in sundry places of scriptures, 
be set out diverse rites and ceremonies, oblations and sacrifices. Let us not think strange of them, but refer them to the times and people for whom they served. Although yet to learned men, they be not unprofitable to be considered, but to be expounded as figures and shadows of things and persons afterward openly revealed in the New Testament. Yes. Though the rehearsal of the genealogies and the pedigrees of the fathers be not much edification of the plain ignorant people, yet is there nothing so impertinently uttered in all the whole book of the Bible, but may serve to spiritual purpose in some respect to all such as will bestow their labors to search out the meanings. These may not be condemned because they serve not to our understanding nor make to our edification. But let us turn our labor to understand and to carry away such sentences and stories as be more fit for our capacity and instruction. And whereas we read in diverse Psalms how David did wish to the adversaries of God sometimes shame, rebuke, and confusion, sometimes the decay of their offspring and issue, sometimes that they might perish and come suddenly to destruction, as he did wish to the captains of the Philistines, Cast forth, he says, your lightning and tear them. Shoot out your arrows and consume them with such other manner of imprecations. Yet ought we not to be offended at such prayers of David, being a prophet as he was, singularly beloved of God and wrapped in spirit with an ardent zeal to God's glory? He hath spoke not of a private hatred and in a stomach against their persons, but wished spiritually the destruction of such corrupt errors and vices, which reigned in all devilish persons set against God. He was of like mind as St. Paul was when he did deliver uh, 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 Hymenaeus and Alexander with the notorious fornicator to Satan to their temporal confusion that their spirit might be saved against the day of the Lord. And when David did profess in some places that he hated the wicked, yet in other places of his Psalms, he professed that he hated them with a perfect hate, not with malicious hate to the hurt of the soul, which perfection of spirit, because it cannot be performed in us so corrupted in affection as we are, we ought not to use in our private causes the like words and form for that we cannot fulfill the like words and sense. Let us not therefore be offended, but search out the reason of such words before we be offended, that we may the more reverently judge of such sayings, though strange to our carnal understandings. Yet to them that be spiritually minded, judged to be zealously and godly pronounced, God therefore, for his mercy's sake, vouchsafe to purify our minds through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, and to instill the heavenly drops of his grace into our hard, stony hearts, to supply humbleness of mind and Christian reverence, we may endeavor ourselves to hear and to read his sacred scriptures and inwardly so digest them as shall be to the comfort of our souls, sanctification of his holy name, to whom with the Son and the Holy Ghost, three persons and one living God, be all laud, honor, praise forever and ever. Amen.